From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Property values are skyrocketing here, and property taxes will too, unless the state intervenes, which Governor Jared Polis says it will, with the bill being crafted in the waning days of the legislative session. People will know how much they save, uh, and I think it'll reduce the increase by uh, quite a bit. Meanwhile, lawmakers have not delivered on Polis's priority to let the state override local zoning. Well, first, to be clear, it's not, uh, you know, the way you're, you're framing it somehow that I, get, I don't want this power. It's a power that homeowners would have. It's a right, development by right. Our regular conversation with the governor is ahead. Then a Supreme Court justice from Colorado sold a mountain property to a prominent lawyer. I'll speak with the investigative reporter at Politico who broke this story about ethics on the Supreme Court. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis sat down with us in his office at the Capitol Thursday afternoon. Mere yards from us, lawmakers were debating the fate of his marquee proposal having to do with housing affordability and zoning. Those lawmakers have watered it down considerably in these final days of session. Meanwhile, a scramble to address property taxes that without intervention could climb so high people are forced from their homes. And that is where I started with Governor Paulus. Governor, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. Property taxes are based, for starters, on market value, a home's estimated worth. The new increases are huge, a jump of between 33 and 47 percent in Metro Denver, even higher in some mountain communities. And so property taxes are set to go way up come January. Uh, I understand that you are working on ways to soften the blow. How? We are working on a property tax cut package that we expect to roll out very soon. The, the, The reason it's this late is we had to wait for the actual assessment data that came in this week to kind of fill in the numbers. We, we've been working on this framework with legislators, with experts for months. Now we have the initial assessment data from the counties this week. So uh, we have people in the back with green lamps rapidly trying to fill in the numbers. Uh, we expect that next week we will do this. I would say for homeowners, the relief will take two forms. One will be, we have a threshold of the home value that's subject to no taxation. That's so right. we want to increase that threshold. So that one would be a larger tax break for the less expensive homes. So somebody who owns a $500,000 home uh, will get a significant break. Somebody who owns a $2 million home will still get a break, but but not as big because it's a threshold. The other one is reducing the over temporarily reducing the overall assessment rate, just reducing the actual percentage. So we're working on a combination of those as we did in the past. We are figuring out uh, the final pieces of it, including the duration of it. Is it for a year, two years, 10 years? And obviously, if it winds up being for two years, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen again in two years, but it just means that we were able to reach agreement on the immediate needs. So I would expect that that will uh, be rolled out early next week uh, with something where people will know how much they save. 
uh, and I think it'll reduce the increase by uh, quite a bit. Can I just do a brief kind of description of why we're facing this? So our state had a way of containing property tax growth. It was called the Gallagher the Amendment. The Gallagher Amendment right. was repealed. Right. And it did some things well and it did some things poorly. So, the, the you know, we repl- we got rid of it. I supported getting rid of it, but it needs to be replaced with something that prevents property taxes from increasing rapidly. I mean, naturally, if your home value goes up, they're going to go up a bit, but we don't want them to go up, you know, rapidly or 23% or anything like that. Um, nobody should be priced out of where they live just because their property tax has gone up, especially seniors on a fixed income. So this work that we're doing is really to figure out how to replace the Gallagher Amendment with a mechanism to prevent property values from escalating rapidly in the future and provide immediate relief now, whether that's for two years or 10 years or three years or, or whatever we can do uh, with an ongoing commitment to work on this more down the road. Because presumably this is a rolling problem. Uh, and so yeah, we'll, let me we will just, see. And let me just add, it's a problem. That's a word you use, but it's a result of higher home prices. And I know we're going to get into housing and we, we want to bring more lower cost housing online, but it, it's a function of higher home prices. I mean, it does, the rates aren't going up. It's going up because a $400,000 home is now a $600,000 home. So as a percentage, we're trying to bring the percent down. We're trying to raise the threshold of what has zero tax. But the reason that we're facing this is directly a function of higher home prices. Indeed, we are going to talk about housing. So a picture there of taxes people pay on their homes. And let's move to the housing itself. The thing you've been, I think, most passionate about achieving this session and that's using the state's power to declare that almost anywhere you build a single-family home in Colorado, you ought to be able to build a duplex or apartments or condos. Uh, because you, Governor Polis, argue that upzoning, density, is better for the climate, affordability, mobility, and that it is the antidote to sprawl. It appears you may not get that power after huge pushback from some local governments. What did you miss in your calculations? Well, first to be clear, it's not uh, you know the way you're, you're framing it somehow that I get, I don't want this power. It's a power that homeowners would have. It's a right, right? Development by right. So if you own a home in Colorado, it should be a right to develop an ADU or in many areas, you know, duplexes, triplexes. An ADU um, is an accessory dwelling, your grandmother flat, mother-in-law flat. Very compelling because it's the lowest cost rental for the market. And by the way, it's also part of the solution if your home's going up and your taxes have gone up. So it would give like a senior homeowner an option of taking on another income stream, having this built and then getting another 1400 a month or whatever they can get depending on where they live. So duplexes, triplexes, those are really exciting from the perspective that they're for purchase, for equity building, for wealth building, and they're lower cost than a single family home, 30, 40% less. So it's a way to bring inventory, housing inventory to uh, the market in areas where people can afford to live. This is one of my my big goals. And, and I would say Ryan, as I talk about it, it's, of course, my goal for my second term. I mean, I ran on this. We're going to deliver on it. Uh, just like my first term I ran on and getting it done, preschool and kindergarten. full. We had half-day kindergarten when I came in. I said, we're going to get full day. Nobody thought we could do it. We did it. Uh, and I said, we're going to get universal preschool. I'm glad and, you brought this up because that, yeah, that happened. It did. and 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 But I, I would wait. We didn't get universal preschool in my first year or my second year. It took us all four years. The vote was in my third year in office. Now here it goes live, my fifth year in office. So you know, we're committed on delivering on, on on what I said. And one of the biggest things we face in our state is a housing crisis. And I've met with, uh, you know, I, I was in Colorado Springs last week meeting with a, a teacher who's 14 years seniority in the district. 
can still barely afford rents. The Colorado Springs market home price has gone up from 350000 to over 450000 just over the last five years. And, you know, even when you have good credit, a good job, you know, they went to their banker, this teacher, and they said, we, I could afford to buy something in the 250 range. Guess what? Nothing in the 250 range within 40 minutes of where they work. And so we've got to find a way as a state where people can afford to live in and near communities they work. Housing is a climate issue. Housing is an air quality issue. And most of all, how most of us experience it in this state, it's an affordability issue and a quality of life issue. A Senate committee has indeed gutted the bill, taking out the statewide upzoning. So in these waning days of session, will you work to restore that part of the bill or is your eye now on a future session? So we're, we're going to make progress every year is what I can say, because I think we're at a real fork in the road here. We, we can see around the corner because we see even in our own state, the, the town that I live in, Boulder, average home price is a million dollars. There's uh, cities in California, major cities, average home price above a million dollars. Without change and changing our course, that's where we're going to be. We'll have high cost housing uh, that only the wealthy can afford, and we will have subsidized affordable housing. But what is not here in this scenario is working families, the middle class, forced further and further out because they earn too much and often to qualify for the subsidized housing, not nearly enough to buy market rate housing at a million dollars for a home. Uh, and what that means from a, a water perspective in our state, expanding in the exurban areas is unsustainable in air quality, a traffic perspective, a livability perspective, and frankly, an economic perspective as well, uh, because we are already at that point in our state where we're beginning to hurt our competitiveness for companies that locate here because of our growing costs of housing. Did you underestimate the pushback that would come from some local governments? And are those conversations that you need to have more deeply with these folks? Well, look, it, it doesn't, uh, I'm not governor to do the easy things. Uh, nobody thought we could get preschool and kindergarten done. Uh, the easy things tend to get done on their own. Um, and I, I have a saying that I like to say, if it was easy, it would have been done already. So I think that I knew there'd be opposition. And that's why we have and are working with a really historic coalition on making uh, housing more affordable and creating more housing now in the state. And just the breadth of this coalition it's labor unions and business together. It's environmentalists, conservationists, and affordable housing advocates together. So it's really amazing to see kind of the, the broad breadth from firefighters to teachers to the Chamber of Commerce really looking at this and saying we've got to figure out how to take the right path for Colorado and make sure Colorado doesn't become like California. That coalition does not include the bulk of Metro mayors. And that that's like really important buy-in. Why aren't they on board? Well, uh, again, you know, w w I think what the people of our state want, what I met a restaurant worker yesterday in Centennial who has seven roommates, eight of them live in a home to be able to share the rent, which is still a very large part of their income. It's not so much about who solves it for them. It's about solving it. So this kind of squabble about, you know, should mayor solve it? Should a governor solve it? Should the legislature solve it? Uh, what I say is just empower the property owners themselves to solve it, uh, and the market and the property owners will do that. Uh, we'll see more low-cost units come into the market that people can afford to rent close to where jobs are. Um, I think it's dismissive to call it a squabble, though. In other words, there are deep concerns about a particular city's ability to guide its destiny. There are concerns about neighborhood character. There are concerns that 
sure, if you take a million dollar home that's standing now, and then you build a duplex for instance, and each side sells for $900,000, you're not necessarily adding to affordable housing. So address some of the deeper yeah. concerns well, that you're hearing. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a data-driven person, as you know. So I look at the work of Pew, of Brookings. These are folks who have dug deep in this issue. The facts of the matter are that residential projects with buy-right approval are 28% faster, and that duplexes and multifamily housing are up to 43% less cost to purchase, 27% uh, less to rent. So that's just the data from other cities and states that have implemented this. I mean, Colorado, first of all, the reason we have a housing crisis and costs have gone up is we're a great place to live. The bad news is the secret's out, uh, and we've got to figure out a way where we don't lose the ability for families to be able to afford and thrive in our state uh, simply because we're a great place to live. In short, you have more conversations to have. Do you think that's true? Well, we're, I, we, you know, we have uh, had over 150 stakeholder meetings on this. I'm excited to have more. I obviously ran on this. You interviewed me during the campaign. What am I going to do? Obviously, one of our top things is yep. we're going to make housing more affordable in our state. We've got to. Uh, I think that's really a, what we ran on. It's one of the main reasons I won by 19.6 points with who's counting. To mental health care, a big issue for the legislature and your administration over the last few years. In January of last year, you named Dr. Morgan Medlock as the state's first behavioral health commissioner, saying she was the right person to lead, quoting here, a transformational change. In a statement just last week, you announced Medlock had been replaced by an interim director and that a national search is underway for her replacement. Why are you replacing her just over a year after she took that job? Well, I think, uh, you know, Dr. Medlock did a great job getting us to this point. And as that catalyst for, remember, that first year of the agency, it's a new agency. Obviously, for my second term, while uh, many members of my cabinet are staying on, I've made a few changes. We have a new director of cabinet affairs. We have a new director of our Office of Economic Development and International Trade. And uh, we're excited to work on the next, uh, the next for the Behavioral Health Administration. Medlock told the Colorado Sun she was basically forced out after conflicts with your chief of staff and other cabinet officers. Uh, she said she faced, quoting here, a lack of support at many levels, close quote, as she tried to build a brand new agency. Uh, she thinks this is premature. You know, I don't know if it's, you know, you premature or not. Ultimately, that's kind of my call as governor. Again, I think the kind of leader we needed for that critical first year, uh, you know, thank her for her work and getting us to that point. And I think we now need to move from that creation phase into a more sustainable phase. And that means collaboration across cabinet with stakeholders. We always uh, hold all members of our cabinet to the higher standards and the right fit on a Tuesday might not be the the right fit, you know, six months later. We have ongoing kind of changes in what we're asking our agencies to do. Uh, and I'm excited to make sure that, as I said, as we finalize my cabinet for the second term, that we have, uh, we're all, you know, rowing the same way and moving towards the best outcome for the people of Colorado. When it comes to outcomes, uh, let me quote Democratic State Representative Judy Amabile. She's been critical of the agency's direction under Medlock, what she sees as a lack of progress for people with mental illness. That quote, by 2024, we are supposed to have the safety net in place. And that means anybody who needs help gets help when they need it. And in the meantime, people are really struggling out there, especially the people with the most serious disease. 
And so far, I don't think there's been a lot of relief for those people. What, what do you want to do differently under new leadership? Yeah, my, my uh, job as the, the boss of whoever the commissioner is, is to ensure accountability and that we achieve those goals. And um, there's some areas like the rulemaking that are a little bit behind schedule. Uh, we're going to make sure we get it done. Remember, this is a new enterprise for the state. What we did here, well, I shouldn't use the word enterprise. That's a term of art in our state. It means something different. Yeah. It's a new agency in our state. Uh, we consolidated, we had behavioral health spread out among, I think it was six or seven different agencies, meaning there was no single point of entry. We had even Department of Ag involved, Department of Public Safety, Human Services, all. So we said, you know what? This doesn't make any sense because when an individual suffering from a mental health issue needs help, that's the least likely time they want to navigate a government bureaucracy. I mean, I don't think anybody ever wants to navigate a government bureaucracy, but when you need help, that's the least time you want to do it. So we uh, consolidated and are in, I should say you're in the process of consolidating. I mean, much of it has moved over, but we're continuing this work around a behavioral health administration to truly put patients first. We welcome input from Representative Anoble, uh, many others, to make sure we get it right. But it's a pretty important change for our state, and I'm deeply committed to getting it right to serve the mental health needs of Coloradans. What is the biggest change you'd like to see? I mean, when you looked at the mental health system in this state, you've described it as, as perhaps fractured, even within state government. You know, is there an initial step you're excited about? Uh, you know, if you ask me to kind of diagnose the, the problems in our state, I'd say it's access, it's quality, and access is a problem both not just economically, culturally of language issues, geographically, and then making sure it's the right data-driven care that works, uh, measuring outcomes, rewarding what works, changing what doesn't work, uh, is going to be critical to apply that data lens to how we do mental and behavioral health care in Colorado. The legislature has approved a $38 billion budget and a school finance act that comes close to full funding for K-12 schools with a promise to bring them there solidly by the 2024-25 school year. But the latest state revenue forecasts are cautious, envisioning slow growth, the possibility of a recession. Uh, when times get tough in Colorado, Governor, historically K-12 has gotten cut so what's to say that this will be sustainable going forward? 10.2% increase for school funding. Absolutely incredible. That's over $20,000 of new investment for a class of 22 kids. Um, this is a transformative level. And, and just as importantly, Ryan... It's incredible. Is it sustainable? Yeah, we're doing it in a way that's sustainable, meaning that we have record reserves, the state education fund uh, in strong uh, condition, and obviously... You know, nobody can say something sustainable for 20 years or 40 years, but we are being very conservative and prudent and know that we're going to be able to maintain this over the next several years. Denver and Colorado Springs both have mayoral elections soon, runoffs. In Denver, it's the former head of the Metro Chamber of Commerce, Kelly Bruff, against former state Senator Mike Johnston. In Colorado Springs, pastor and business owner Yemi Mobilade facing former Secretary of State Wayne Williams. A quick question, do you have a pick in either of these races? You know, I, uh, Ryan, I know all four well, and, and what's I've had a great relationship with Mayor Southers, with Mayor Hancock. Uh, I am very much looking forward to working with uh, the next mayors of our, our two largest cities and uh, to continue that strong relationship going forward. Okay, you're not putting your thumb on the scale there. 
Well, you know, it's really up to the voters of those cities, right? I don't have that's to true. You, you live in Boulder, and, right? So uh, whoever is elected, I work with all the mayors. I mean, not just the mayors of our biggest cities, and obviously the the mayor of Denver, the mayor of Colorado Springs, they'll have a big role to play in helping work with me to chart Colorado's future on transit, on housing, uh, on sustainability. And uh, I have good relations and know all four of those uh, folks that are there. And, and I'm, I'm very confident that I can work with whoever the people choose very effectively for the people of our state. On the subject of endorsements, uh, President Biden announced this week he will run for re-election. Will you endorse him? Well, of course, I support President Biden. I always have. I, I think he's been an effective president. Uh, I think that the alternative of Donald Trump or or DeSantis is very scary uh, to the people of our state of Colorado uh, and to the nation. President Biden's done a great job defending freedom and democracy. I'm excited by the the work product of the American Rescues Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is transforming energy independence in our state. And we're putting that to good use to make electric vehicles less expensive and support new technologies with hydrogen and other opportunities our state has. Federal support for renewables, uh, some of the dollars tied to the Inflation Reduction Act uh, may be in jeopardy given the debate right now going on in Congress with the budget. I hope not. Yeah, I, I certainly hope there's not clawbacks. I, I, I think we obviously need to have fiscal stability nationally. Uh, but we need to make sure we don't compromise our future by cutting some of these investments that'll help lead to future prosperity and energy independence in that process. Does President Biden's age concern you? No, I mean, as you know, as President Biden said, people should uh, look at it and, and he should be able to demonstrate that he's uh, doing a great job regardless of age. I, I think age is just a number. Uh, what matters is, is whether somebody is able to be an effective uh, executive, effective legislator. When I first ran for Congress, Ryan, I was uh, 32 and a lot of people said he's too young. Uh, my successor, Jonah Goose, also quite young when he ran. I was the second youngest member of Congress uh, in that term that I served uh, back in, in 2008. And again, it, it, once people got to know me, um, you know, maybe some people voted against me because I was too young. But I think by and large, it would say, yeah, this guy has worked in business. He's worked in the State Board of Education. He's ready to serve. No one was concerned it, you were going to die, though. Uh, well, I, I, I think the concern was, again, at all ages, I think it's about what somebody brings to the job. And you remember um, Ronald Reagan, uh, was it his 84 debate? Uh, where he was debating Walter Mondale, and the uh, the you know the um, the debate moderator brought in uh, the age because Ronald Reagan was then the oldest serving president, yep. uh, and Ronald Reagan says, "I promise not to make age an issue. I won't take advantage of the youth and inexperience mm -hmm. of my opponent." I remember, yeah, that moment. So you know, when they when they go low, you go high. That's a Michelle Obama thing, and I agree with it. Colorado's first female member of Congress, Pat Schroeder, died last month. Uh, they're now holding her memorial service. I understand you'd known Representative Schroeder since you were a child, and I thought perhaps you could reflect as we close on uh, her legacy for a moment. So Pat is, is was a dear friend, and and um, we regularly exchanged you know emails and texts. Uh, she came in to campaign for me when I ran for Congress, ran for governor. I miss her already so much. I know that I just signed several uh, pro-choice bills a couple of weeks ago, and that's the kind of thing where uh, she would have, you know, emailed or texted me afterwards, uh, usually making some woody comparison with her later home state of Florida and going the wrong direction and, and us going the right direction of Colorado. But she was proud of Colorado, proud of the direction we're going, uh, and had a remarkable wit, one of the most uh, clever, intelligent people I knew with a biting wit, um, that would have bested even you, Ryan. I hate to say, I don't know if you've had her on, but she would have bested you. She's amazing. 
uh, and I really miss her and my condolences and love to the family. You can hear a conversation that I had with her from a few years back, and indeed, uh, how I was easily outwitted at CPR.org. Governor, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Always a pleasure. Democratic Governor Jared Polis speaks with us regularly at the state capitol. There's a transcript of our conversation at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour as ethics issues dog the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. I think we're only screwed if we're not willing to act. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by the Grand Canyon Trust. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who's from Colorado, is the latest member of the Supreme Court under scrutiny for an ethically questionable financial deal. Politico reported this week on a Colorado property sale Gorsuch made soon after he was confirmed. Investigative reporter Heidi Prisbula joins us from Washington at the same time as another justice is under scrutiny. And uh, Heidi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You describe Gorsuch's former property as a 3,000-square-foot log home on 40 acres in Granby, so nestled between the west side of Rocky Mountain National Park and Winter Park. What happened that made you interested in this sale? The sale had been, not the sale, but the home ownership had been reported by the New York Times in March of 2017. And the reason it drew scrutiny was because he had bought the home as an investment property or a timeshare type situation with two gentlemen um, from the Anschutz uh, orbit. And of course those are oil and gas, uh, tied to the oil and gas billionaire. So it had drawn scrutiny for that at the time that Gorsuch was being scrutinized. I looked at that, I was looking over all of the real estate transactions of the justices. Mm. And I thought, well, what happened with that property? When I looked further and looked into the property records in Granby, I found that this it had been offloaded, it had been sold uh, nine days after he was sworn in. At least that's when the um, they went into contract. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Upon further uh, examination, I found that the buyer was one of the heads of one of the largest law firms, Greenberg Trowick, with a lot of business before the Supreme Court. There was at least 22 cases that had come before the Supreme Court with Greenberg being involved in either as the lead plaintiffs, representing lead plaintiffs, or had filed amicus briefs or was in some other way involved uh, before the court. So of course, the fact that that had not been disclosed on the disclosure forms uh, was interesting to me because that's clearly something that you would think in any other branch of government would have drawn at least some kind of extra vetting or some kind of extra attention. And yet when I looked on the disclosure forms that Gorsuch had filed, he did disclose uh, the Walden Group, which was the name of an LLC that he and his partners used to purchase the property. That was listed. His stake and the amount of money that he got in that sale was listed, but it was not in, you know, indicated who the buyer was, the buyer which was. seems to be a pretty big detail. 
Okay, lots to unpack there. Uh, my first question is, how long had the home been on the market, uh, do you know, prior to that sale that came yes. just days after he uh, was elevated to the court? That's an important question because the home had been on the market for two years. They seemed to be having trouble finding a purchaser. And again, it was the timing of this being that they finally found this elusive purchaser nine days after Gorsuch was sworn in um, that also I found interesting. <laughs> I thought, oh, is this just one big coincidence? Um, and here's the big issue here, you know, because I've got a lot of people who've written me or, or tweeted at me um, in the aftermath of this story. And they say rightly that um, there was no laws that were broken here. And that's absolutely true. And according to ethics experts, that's the problem, though, is that no rules appear to have been broken, even disclosure rules. And the reason why is because unlike the executive branch, unlike the Congress, uh, and unlike really every other higher court in other countries, there is no enforceable ethics code for the Supreme Court of the United States. It's entirely self-regulating. Hmm. And so any of the Supreme Court justices can say, yes, we self-regulated here. We self uh, kind of uh, uh, reviewed this and decided that it wasn't a conflict of interest. Uh, and we also decided that we disclosed what we needed to disclose, which in this case was not a lot of information. It was just kind of a peak. And you couldn't even tell from looking on that particular page that this was even a real estate transaction. Okay, um, so, and so to be very clear, no specific laws broken here, which of course raises all sorts of questions about what the law should be and uh, what rules might apply. Just a, a little bit more about the deal before we dive deeper into that. You know, the property sold for nearly $2 million. It occurs to me, Heidi, that there are only so many people who can afford to buy a place like that. I mean, it, it, it is possible that a a well-off local attorney was the buyer by coincidence. And, and I'll note that this attorney, Brian Duffy from Greenberg Traurig, told you he's never met Justice Gorsuch. Uh, do you want to share he a few did. words? And to his great credit, when I called, he talked to me. And I really appreciated that as an investigative reporter because so often uh, the subjects of your reporting just do a blackout and they mm -hmm. won't speak to you. And so he, he got on the phone with me he said, look, I'm, I'm an avid fly fisher. Uh, we'd been looking for the right property for our family for many years. Um, I did not initially know that Gorsuch was th among the sellers. Um, and I did press for more information on when those initial talks began, but was unable to pinpoint when they began. Again, um, it was curious timing to me, given that the New York Times had written in March because of this oil and gas relationship between Gorsuch and his partners, they had written a story identifying Gorsuch as one of the owners of this property. And then it was two months later and nine days after he was sworn in that it went under contract. Mm -hmm. That said, um, Mr. Duffy was completely upfront with me about the fact that he said he did at a certain point in these negotiations um, understand who the seller was. And he said that he got clearance from his ethics department. Now, the Supreme Court was given a week to respond to us, including detailed requests for information from Gorsuch about whether he knew 
uh, Mr. Duffy, given that uh, the Federalist Society had hosted, for instance, a winter party at Greenberg Traurig's offices in Denver. Um, you know, these two certainly ran in, in in some of the same circles, but Mr. Duffy is is definitely a, a Democrat. I looked at his donations and he maxed out to Hillary Clinton. He supported Kirsten Gillibrand. He did make some Republican donations to uh, Senator McCain, for instance, but by all accounts, he, he is a Democrat. So it is possible, like he says, that they, they didn't know each other. They didn't know when they first started this negotiation um, who the, the two parties were, but they, it did become clear in the course of this. And then the contract, it went under contract again, nine days after Gorsuch was sworn in. Right. And and I think that the fundamental point of your story is about the opacity here and uh, perhaps the lack of, of teeth, of oversight. I want to say that the Senate is having a hearing, I think, Tuesday on proposals for Supreme Court ethics reform. I mean, this all comes as Justice Clarence Thomas's relationships with rich and powerful people are called into question. Uh, Justice Thomas has not disclosed numerous gifts from folks who have interests being litigated at the Supreme Court. Uh, in just about the last few seconds here, uh, do, you, do you think this is a, a watershed moment in the idea of more ethical oversight for the the country's highest court. We've been here before, about a decade ago, when there was a bevy of stories on the need for more disclosure around the court. All signs right now point to Justice Roberts being very um, adverse to making any changes at this point. I will say that in the Senate, it would require 60 votes. We know that is an impossibility in the current political climate. So it would really come down to the court deciding to come up with a code, an enforceable code. Um, I think broadly speaking, we're in a watershed moment and that the sunlight is shining so brightly on all of this. I don't know if it will lead to actual change in this moment. Heidi, thank you so much for the nuanced reporting and for sharing it with us. I'm grateful. Thank you so much. Heidi Prisbola is an investigative reporter at Politico, and she's based in Washington. We'll be right back with the surprising discoveries made after a fire. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Wading in wetlands and nesting in open spaces, the American Avocet comes to Colorado for the breeding season. It's elegant, standing tall on long blue legs, with a striking black and white pattern on its back and wings, and a cinnamon-colored head and neck in the spring. But the Avocet's most distinguishing feature is a thin, saber-like bill that curves upwards near the tip. It's a specialized tool for feeding in shallow waters, and birdwatchers often see groups of graceful Avocets heads down, sweeping their bills from side to side, scything through the mud in a fascinating rhythm. Avocets sometimes lay their eggs in the nests of other females or even other species. And once they hatch, avocet chicks are quickly able to step out on their own. They leave their nests after just one day, fully able to sashay along the water's edge in search of a meal. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health. 
The Marshall Fire is the most destructive wildfire in state history, engulfing parts of Louisville and Superior. In CPR's podcast, My Story So Far, people affected by the disaster share their experiences, like Mike and Jesse De La Plaine. Their two young daughters were in the audience as they spoke at Louisville Underground. So our story starts about eight years ago when our youngest, little Thule, um, was about a year old. Um, You know, that perfect age, she was just starting to get mobile but couldn't get into too much trouble. And our older daughter, Neva, was about four years old, just a beautiful age. And I was at home with the girls, getting some chores done, and I hear the the buzzer on the the laundry, and I turn to Neva and say, can you watch your little sister for just a second? I'm going to run down and do the laundry. She says, oh, yes, Mommy, I'll watch her. So I race down into the basement, and I throw the clothes from the washer to the dryer, and I race back up, you know, thinking, you know, how fast I was. And I take a look at little Thule, and there's something in her mouth that she's chewing on, and there's a little tail hanging out of her mouth. And I scream, and she it, it flies out of her mouth, falls to the ground, and I, I blink for a moment, collect myself, look down, and it's a mouse. It's a mouse. She was chewing on the face of a dead mouse. <laughs> and I turned to Neva, and I was like, Neva, I thought you were watching your sister. And she's like, I was watching her. She was, I was watching her chew on this cute little mouse. <laughs> so I, I'm panicked. I'm like, I, I called poison control. I, you know, what if this mouse was poisoned? I'm wiping her mouth out with a washcloth. I, I call the doctor. I say, what should I do? And she says, well, come on in. We'll check her out and bring the mouse too. So I put the mouse, scoop up the mouse and put it in a bag and uh, scoop up my girls and bring them to the doctor. And she checks out, you know, Thule and, and she says, I, you know, I, she, she looks okay, but let's, let's check out this mouse. So next thing you know, we're all gathered around the exam table and there's a little mouse on the table and, you know, the doctor's poking it and prodding it. And she looks up and says, don't worry, my dad was a veterinarian. Um, and she says, you know, the mouse looks okay. It doesn't look injured or diseased or anything. Um, But tell you what, you know, head on home, you know, keep an eye on your daughter for the next couple weeks. Keep the mouse, like put it in a couple bags, put it in the freezer. And like, just in case she gets sick, you know, we could always pull it back out and test it or something. She intended for it to be just two weeks. (laughs) Well, the mouse stayed there for a little longer than that, drifted to the bottom of the freezer. Um, But not forgotten about, I mean, the girl's love the mouse story. They, you know, over the next (laughs) number of years, always begging to hear the mouse story. Tell us the mouse story. And we do. But of course, whenever we tell the mouse story, then it always ends with, you know, we want to see the mouse. We want to see the mouse. And at that point, you know, my husband and I look at each other and like, oh gosh, that feeling of dread. Like, we don't want to dredge this mouse up from the bottom of the freezer. And you don't know what kind of state it's in and so we kind of we deflect and we we put it off and we say you know not not this time oh maybe maybe next time oh yeah yeah, yeah. another time so fast forward to Wednesday December 29th 2021 the day before the fire and it's winter break we're getting the girls packed up they're gonna go spend the night with grandma and we're getting ready to get them out the door for their sleepover and, you know, Thule comes marching over to us. 
puts her foot down and says, I want to see the mouse. You guys always say you're going to show it to us, and you never do, and I want to see it. Enough is enough. So we nod, and we say, it's time to make a deal. We're getting ready to go over to Grandma's. you got to get out the door, but when you come home tomorrow, I promise you, we will pull that mouse out, and we will look at it. But the next day was the Marshall Fire, and it destroyed our house, burned down completely. And with it, that chance, and all those chances, all the things, the, all the things you say you're going to you know, put off till tomorrow when you should have just done it today. When I told little Thule that our house was gone, that we had lost everything, the, the first thing she said to me, she looked up at me with teary eyes, and she said, Daddy, I've waited my entire life to see that mouse, and now I'm never going to have a chance to see it. And she wasn't accusing, she wasn't angry at me. She was just, she was really, really profoundly sad. I, a little bit after that, I, I saw in an article somewhere, um, it, they, it was about loss, and it said, your home and your belongings, they tell the story of who you are, of where you've been, of who you love. And when you lose those things, sometimes it, 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 you have a tendency to feel like you've lost a part of yourself. You've lost a part of your story. And that's how, in that moment with her, that's how I felt. I, I felt completely lost. I felt I was so overwhelmed. I was heartbroken. All I wanted to do was find something for you guys, for both, for both my daughters, something. I wanted to salvage something something of meaning to you that would bring you joy. We had a, a, a group of volunteers come and help us sift through the ashes. Uh, they were wonderful. They were very kind. They were respectful. They would bring every little fragment, every little piece of whatever, and we, we huddled around on the edge, and they, they would bring it to us, and we would huddle around it and look at it, and we would try to identify it. It was actually kind of fun to try to pick out what this was. It brought us a little bit of closure. But at the end of the day, these were things that resembled our things. They were not our things. These were blackened, mangled shells of our things. And so we weren't really satisfied. I still was holding out hope that we would find something. And so I was out there every day that we were doing the debris removal. And one of these days, I happened to be out there with my daughter, Neva, and the guy had the front end loader, and he was cleaning up our, our garage, and he had our freezer, and he was lifting it, and this, the freezer was blackened and charred and all mangled, and he lifted this thing way up high so that he could, he could swing it out over all the, the debris and, and put it in the dumpster, and as he was doing that, this freezer just came apart. It cracked like an egg, and everything inside of it came splashing down onto the ground. And I was standing there looking at this in horror because it was, it was all rotten. And it became clear that everything inside of this freezer had not burned. You could still read the labels on freezer bags. And I'm standing there looking at this thing. The smell of it will probably haunt my dreams forever. And, I, and I'm 
just horrified, and I feel this little poke at my side. And there's Neva, and Neva's always looking out for her little sister. And she tells me, Dad, there's Tuli's mouse. And, I, and I, I said, what? And she said, right there on top, that's Tuli's mouse. And I said, are, are you sure? Well, of course she was sure. I should know better than to second guess Neva's memory. She doesn't forget a thing. She was only four years old at the time, but she, and she told me, Mommy put it into two Ziploc bags, she put it into a green bag, and then she wrapped it in a, in a, a purple rubber band. So I ran over there and I look in this pile. Yeah, there's a little green bag with a purple rubber band on it. So I grab it. But I'm terrified of what's inside this thing. It's been sitting in a pile of rotten food for months at this point. I don't know, I don't know what I might find if I open this bag up. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know when to deal with it. So I stash it underneath a bush um, with some of the other little fragments of things that we had saved. Well, the moment came a little while later. There was another day where we were, the end of debris cleanup, we were getting ready to take out the rest of the uh, trees that had been damaged or destroyed in the fire. This was maybe one of the more traumatic days of, of any of the debris cleanup. Um, our, our backyard was kind of our little haven, and, it, and we loved spending time out there, and these trees were a big part of that, and Thule was hugging them and saying goodbye. These trees had names. They were like family members. They were... They were really special and important, and Thule was inconsolable, and I didn't know what to say to help you, and I, and, I, and I look over, and I see this little green bag sitting there under the bush, and I think, if there was a time to do it, it's now. So I grab little Thule, and I say, hey, I want, I want you to open something. I have something for you, and you were like, what is it? And we go over there, and I have no idea what I'm going to find inside this bag, but I take out my pocket knife, and we slit open the outer bag. And I peel it back a little bit. And Thule and me, our heads together, sort of peer into this little bag. And the first thing we see is a tail and a little paw. And she turns to me, her eyes as wide as they could be, and a smile from ear to ear. And she instantly knows what this is. And she grabs it and she rips it open. And there is, in a zipper, in double bag, <laughs> a little mouse, perfectly preserved. It looks like this mouse had been chewed on yesterday. It was, <laughs> it was perfect. And she took this mouse and she held it above her in triumph and she ran around to every person that was there. She showed everybody, she told everybody the story. And of all the things that I thought that we were going to recover from this fire, this was the most unexpected thing I could imagine ending up with as our family's, you know, brand new heirloom moving forward. <laughs> well, and I, and I think, too, you know, this little mouse, I mean, it's, it's kind of symbolic in a way of, like, our journey as well. Like, it's resilience and it's, um, you know, the, the healing journey that we've been through, I, I, I think... You know, if this little mouse survived and made it through, then we can too. And I have to tell you, because I know you're all wondering, yes, once again, that mouse is back in our freezer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse and Mike, for sharing that amazing story. 
I saw people experience a range of emotions that night in Louisville. Some tears, more laughter than I could have expected, and the kind of special moments of connection that happen when people who've had the same experience share their stories with each other. An excerpt from the latest episode of My Story So Far, CPR's podcast sharing the lives of Coloradans in their own words. You also heard the host there, Luis Antonio Perez. Finally today. April is Jazz Appreciation Month, JAM for short, and few adore the genre as much as Denver's own Joe Andrews. Andres has been a music educator for decades in Denver Public Schools and at the Colorado Conservatory for Jazz Arts. He also performs at Dazzle and Nocturne with his alto flute and soprano saxophone. Now he's assembled a quintet of seasoned local musicians for his first album of original works, Resonance. Here is Since Forever, a tune dedicated to Joe Andres' collaborator and fellow educator, the late cornetist Ron Miles. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my collaborators, Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield, and I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.